Please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 10. For those of you who are visiting, we're going through Leviticus in the evening service. And at this point, we're going to do a bit of a thematic sermon. We're going to look at two, read two passages briefly that talks about what a priest does. We'll be considering that. thought that would be a, a helpful sermon, a little bit shorter tonight, uh, as we are going to have also a presentation on the, some of God's work and the gospel in the world. So we're going to be reading from two passages. The first, Leviticus 10. This is the Lord's charge to Aaron about what he and his sons are to do as priests. Verses 10 and 11, and then we will read the first six verses of Leviticus 16, which is the passage in the Day of Atonement. This is God's word. Leviticus 10, verse 10. To Aaron, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And moving over to chapter 16, reading the first six verses, first five verses. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on a holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban and the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goat offerings for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. This is God's word. Well, sometimes it's not what you know or who you are, but who you know. The story that I heard from Gary Peterson that he's, with his permission, I will share again. He was talking about how he and his brother, I believe, you can get the, the full story, the correct story, the funnier story from Gary, but how he and his brother were, were going down to Virginia. They were doing some genealogical research on, on their grandmother's side. And so they're, they're down in rural South Virginia and they're going down this, this dirt country road and they're about halfway to their destination when the, a man shows up, an older man with a double-barreled shotgun and a dog. And he says something to the effect of, you with the foreign plates, halt! Foreign plates being New Jersey or whatever he had. And you know there are still some people that are not quite sure that the Civil War is over. And, and so he said, who are you and why are you here? And Gary's brother wisely said, we're the kin of so-and-so, her grandmother. He said, eh? Old hearing, you know. We're the kin of so-and-so. And he said, oh, really? Why do you say so? Any kid of hers, this friend of mine, come on down. Right? Sometimes it's who you know. I had a different experience, but something along those lines. When Elizabeth and I were first here, and we you may remember we drove an old white Volvo, and we decided to buy another car, secondhand, and so we, we didn't have a brick-and-mortar bank account, so we, we went down to a certain bank and, and went out and expecting to put a check in and, and withdraw some cash that day, not realizing that you have to wait about seven days for them to, to, to realize that you're okay. But, but you may know someone at Faith Church who has worked at a bank. Turned out it was that bank, and that person just happened to be the manager on duty that day and happened to hear of our request and said, Oh, Andrew and Elizabeth Farshinger, they're okay. We walked away with our cash. 
Sometimes it's not what you know or who you are, but who you know. And those stories remind you that there's many times you need help from the outside. You need someone to intervene, someone to intercede for you. Now, this cuts against the, the rugged individualism that hopefully we still have as Americans, right? The ideal is I'll do it myself. We blazed the trails across this, this continent. We built our cabins in our cities. You drop one of us off in the, the Amazon rainforest, the Swiss Army knife, come back in a year, there'll be a Taj Mahal. It's the American way, right? Yet there are times when you need help. You know, I can't go into the White House, for instance, and speak with the president. In fact, the Sazovs were just in D.C., and they were talking about how they couldn't even get tickets to go visit the White House this week. There's a lot of things you can't do. I couldn't go into a bank and say, can I get a loan for $10 million? They'd look at my finances and say, no. But there are times that you need help. Sometimes to someone to do something for you, to give you access, to smooth things over, to co-sign a loan. And if that's the case for dealing with, say, the President of the United States, how much more so with the Holy God who created you? Now, today the belief is that God, if he exists, is you know, kind of a divine support service to give you life and happiness and the purpose and meaning. God's there as your friend to provide forgiveness, maybe some direction, moral guidance, maybe to function as a life philosophy. And the idea is that, of course, I can, I can walk up to God anytime I want. God, God and me, we're, we're like that. You know? uh, Leviticus and the rest of the Bible would say it's very different. God is holy. And the amazing thing is that he desires your presence. But you can't come to him any more than you would say, fly a spaceship directly into the sun. If you can't approach him, you, you, directly you will be consumed. You can't talk to him on your own. You, you can't earn his approval. For that to happen, God has to provide a way. You need a mediator. You need a priest. And through this priest, you have the amazing access to God. It's a right to call him Father. And so tonight, as we're, we're looking at what a priest does, drawing from Leviticus and other places, we're going to look at four things that a priest does. These aren't exhaustive. Priests could do other things. But, but to appreciate Jesus' work and see how he fulfills them and then see how that should change the way you relate to God and others around you. So let's look at why you need a priest. Well, the, the first of all is that you need a representative. Now, in some ways, you should understand that. We, we live in a constant, not a democracy, but a constitutional republic. The leaders you elect, they go to Trenton and, and Washington, and they make decisions on your behalf. They represent you, whether you like it or not. They represent you. Well, the priest here, in even a far more profound way, represents the people before God. Now, all priests did this as they offered sacrifices to God, but especially the high priest. Turn with me a few pages back to Exodus 28. Exodus 28, this is talking about the, the clothes, the, the uniform of the high priest. That's page 68 if you're in the Pew Bible. And we're going to be reading verses 15 to 21. It's a detailed description of, of the ephod, the priest wore. It had, it had a lot of significance. So, so we'll read these six verses and, and we'll see how the priest represents God's people. Exodus 28, verses 15 to 21, and then we'll jump down to verse 29. Uh, God saying to Moses, you shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work in the style of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linens. You shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardes, topaz and carbuncle shall be the first row, the second row an emerald, a sapphire and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. 
There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. Then jumping down to 29, explaining the significance of this. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So you may turn back to Leviticus, but there you see in this, this beautifully crafted piece that the Aaron will wear as the high priest, symbolically, all 12 tribes are placed on his chest, right by his heart, and he carries them in to represent them to God when he goes into the holy place. So the, the priest stands for God's people when he goes before the Lord. Now in Leviticus 4, we're not going to read there, but we've, we've had this uh, sermon before, and I'll just refresh you. This is the, the sin offerings, and there are times when people will, when they sin, they have to bring an offering according to their status. The, the more important you are, the bigger the offering, and the blood would go in the outside of the courts, the, the altar of burnt offerings. But if the high priest, called the anointed priest, sinned, his had to go into the holy place. The blood was sprinkled right before the veil, and then it was smeared on the sides of the altar of incense in the holy place. And what you see here is this is the same exact remedy that is needed if all of the congregation sins. And what you see here is the high priest is being equated in some ways with all the people. If he sins, it affects all the people. And why is that? Because he's their head. He's the representative. His sin does not just cover him, but, but impacts everyone else because he is the representative. And you see this principle with, with Adam. And Paul's talking the connection between Adam and Jesus in Romans 5.12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all of sin. And the idea is just as Adam's sin brought sin and death to us, so Jesus as our head will bring life and obedience to us later on. What I want you to see here as this representative is how important and normal it was for you to have someone to represent you before God. And today, we say, I don't, I don't need anyone to represent me. I don't need a representative before God. It takes me as I am. Scripture says that is not the case. You need a representative. The second thing is that he offers atonement or intercession. We'll spend a little less time on this. You're probably very familiar with this, but Leviticus 16, as we had read, and the, the Day of Atonement... Here, Aaron, the high priest, enters into God's holy presence. He's, he's representing the people, but for a very specific purpose. Right? The, the main idea is he, he offers the sacrifice in God's presence, the most holy way, in, in a very prescribed way. He goes behind the veil, and, and the idea is that there's one life offered for another. The blood symbolizing the life of a perfect animal is offered before God to cleanse the people of their sins and turn away his anger. And these offerings, they, they changed people from, from sinful and enemies to being brought into God's family and acceptable in his presence. And, and you remember how we talked about how they, they laid a hand on the animal identifying, this is me. And, and then the priest would kill it. And then the, the Hebrew word literally was turn it to smoke. In burning it, the animal would ascend to the Lord. And, and the people as being identified with that animal would be, would be lifted up to the Lord's presence and atonement would be accomplished. Along with this would come intercession. We're not going to look at it now, but, but the priest would often pray for God's people. You can think as Moses uh, acting as the priest before Aaron was ordained. He did this with the golden calf interceding for his people. Later on, in the bronze serpent and their idolatry interceding for, for God's people. With the offering of incense, certainly there was the idea of, of praying 
And so we have a, a priest that will offer an atonement and, and comes to you and pleads for you on, uh, to God on your behalf. And then the priest does something that's called we call protecting. Um, this overlaps with what the prophets would do, but but you see this is an important function of what the priests do. The priests have a protecting role by by guarding what is holy and teaching God's people to be holy. We read in Leviticus 10 that the priests are to know and to teach God's law. Right? You are to be able to discern between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean, and then you are to teach it to God's people. We just read with our kids as we're going through a, a kid's Bible that has excerpts about, about Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of, of Jerusalem, the walls. And, and we read this in, in Nehemiah. I'll just read the first three verses from chapter 8 about how the people listen to the law, but, but listen to who, who teaches the law. All the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square, from before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. We know Ezra as a scribe, but did you notice it said that when he was teaching, it was Ezra the priest. He was a priest. And, and this teaching had a special function so that God's people would be clean, so they would be fit for his presence. The priests were to protect the holy camp. They were to, to teach the people to be clean so that they were fit for God's presence. And then also, they were also to guard the, sac- the, the sacred tabernacle from anything that was unauthorized, anything that wasn't holy. And so there was the teaching part, but there was also the guarding part. They were, in a sense, the temple tabernacle security. And in fact, when you hear in the Old Testament temple guards, you should think priests and Levites. Listen to Moses' charge to Aaron in Numbers. This is after um, the Korah rebellion and, and God's judgments broken out. A few chapters later, he says in Numbers 18, verses 5 and 6, You shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tents of meetings. And so they are to protect the holy from what is common and should not be there. And, and so they have this protection function, both teaching and, and guarding. By the way, if you've been here for the previous sermons, this was the exact charge that was given to Adam in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2.15, to tend and to keep the exact same Hebrew words when they are paired together, as far as I know, always used in a temple function to serve and guard in other places. And so you would see from the beginning, even Adam was, was a beginning of a priest and his job was to teach God's commandments about the tree of life and also to guard the holy place, to crush the head of possessed serpents that tried to undermine God's law. Well, finally, the priest provides a blessing to God's people. If you look at Leviticus 9, we'll read verses 22 through 24. This is the climax before the tragedy of Nadab and Abihu. After Aaron and his sons are ordained priests, they're, they're in this new status of ministers before the Lord. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, They blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. 
And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And here's this high point where God draws his people to him through the work of his priest. And he appears in the glory of the fire. And then after that happens, Aaron blesses the people. Right? A, a declaration of their status and favor before him. This, this, this is tied back. You see, also see God. God blessed Adam and Eve. He, he promised to Abraham that he'd be a blessing. And now the priests are blessing God's people. Just a reminder, as, as you receive the benediction, as you go out from the service, it's reminding them that not only who you are, but that you have experienced the glory of God. Well, when you look at what priests do, you can see why you need a priest. You need someone to represent, to, to atone, to protect, to teach and guard and bless. You could argue that in all these, you see hints of this started in Adam as the first man, the representative, the one who was to be the blessing, the one who was to teach and protect. But he fails and it's finally fulfilled in Christ. Now, Hebrews is very clear that Jesus is not the same line of Aaron. He's, he's something different. He's something better. But he fulfills what it means to be a priest. He's our sure representative before God. He provides atonement at the cost of his own life. He now protects us, but he also teaches us and focuses on God's law. He's crushed the head of Satan. He breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. You think about when he comes down in the glory of fire, it's what Pentecost. The Spirit dwelling in God's people, living inside of him. What it says then is it takes Jesus as your priest to approach God. This is, this is what the Old Testament is looking for. And when you understand that, a priest changes then the way that you relate to God and others. So let's just apply this for a little bit. First of all, think about Christ does this to you, for you, as a priest. You have access to the Father. There are, there are no barriers. You think about, in the Old Testament, the beauty of God drawing his sinful people into his presence. And somehow that, that works. His holiness is contained and they can see glimpses of it and not die. But there are all these barriers. And that's, as we wade through Leviticus, part of the point. This is, this is beautiful, but is there something better? And in Jesus, as, as Hebrews said, the curtain is torn in two. He's replaced Aaron's priesthood. It's interesting looking at the difference between the Protestant and, and, and the Catholic view on priests. And I was, I was, as I've been going through the Old Testament, I've just been curious, well, why do Catholics still have priests? Do they have, do they have a justification for it? Um, well, what, what they would say, and I, I, did, I listened to you know, some, some, some Catholic theology, and I'm sure I can't be fair or absolutely fair, but, but basically they say, look, there's, there was a high priest, there were regular priests, and then in the Old Testament, everyone is the kingdom of priests. That's what Moses said. And so in the New Testament, Jesus is the high priest, and Peter says everyone's a kingdom of priests, so wouldn't stand to reason that, well, there's, there's still that continuity, that there's another layer of priests, Aaron's sons. And, and you can respect someone who looks at the scripture and sees continuity, but we also say there's discontinuity. And the discontinuity, you could go a lot of places, but the, the, the major discontinuity is that Jesus is not just, with, just not another Aaronic priest, he's a new priest. All the ceremonial law is done away with. 
And so we no longer need an intercessor to come before us and God. The same reason why we don't pray to saints. I, I don't know if this is fair to Catholic theology today, but, but, but one theologian was commenting on the early church, rightly focused on who Jesus was as divine, because that was the hard thing for Jewish Christians to believe that this man was also God. That, that blew their minds. That, was, that seemed to be blasphemous. And so the church focused so much on Jesus' divinity that maybe in the beginning it lost sight of his human priestly intercession. And so that's why we need saints to pray to, because Jesus is so far up here. But but this is not what it says. Jesus is our priest. The, the curtain is torn away. You have access. Now, it's an access as a kingdom of priests. So that's not just Lone Ranger Christianity. Me and Jesus, I go off on my own. It's as, as, as a church coming together as God's people. But there are no barriers. And that should lead you to this, this sober appreciation of, of what he has done. You think about if the Stezovs were there and I heard Rich was trying to take a selfie of himself way, way in the White House is in the back. What if one of the, what if one of the guards, not even a guard, a, a squad, a SWAT t- style guard SWAT came up and said, hey, we'd like you to come meet the president right now. We're just going to blow through all the security, the gates, all of that, comes right into the Oval Office, gets to meet President Biden. You'd be amazed. Wow. We have access to our Father because of what our Savior has done, what we've mentioned and more. We should appreciate that. We shouldn't take it for granted. I've mentioned, I think I've mentioned from the pulpit before, that Sammy likes to color and he loves to give gifts to his parents, but he always gives more to Mommy because Mommy works the hardest. Right? Because he, he sees what Mother does and he doesn't take it for granted. She's always cooking and cleaning and caring for us. He's grateful. But what does this mean, the sober appreciation? What Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, all those things, the representative, the atonement, the blessing, the guarding, and more. That's who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I think it's also important to remember still how shocking that is and, and the way it frames the, that we view the world outside. And today, as our culture is moving more and more away from just some basic biblical foundations of, of what sexuality is, of, of what morality is, we're finding some more cultural allies outside of the church. And you can rejoice in that. You have Hindus and Muslims and you just even atheists that are saying, this is insane. And, and you hear them and they, they can be very reasonable and rational in the way they talk. And, and you can link arms when it comes to uh, creating a good society where, where the truth of God can flourish and grow. But you still need to remember, as, as helpful as that is, what did the Apostle Paul say? What does Jesus say? There is only one mediator. Uh, sometimes you, know, you, can, you, you can get so wrapped up in, in the political cultural battles that you forget that there's a deeper spiritual battle. It doesn't, of course, we treat people with love and respect and, and we can dialogue and all those things, but it doesn't matter how good you are on the outside. You still need a mediator. That's your only hope. And that then brings us to the second part, not only the way you relate to God, but the way you relate to other people. You're having a priest is, is a beautifully, wonderful, freeing reality that you do not have to perform before God. But there's another flip side to that coin. It's also a remarkably humbling reality. That it leaves no place for you to stand on your accomplishments and achievements. Now, what do you usually boast about? And we all do. Everyone boasts. Even, even if you know, you're sanctified enough to, to, to have it on the inside. But there's, 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 always a way, there's always a flicker of pride. There's always a way that you look down slightly on someone else. 
Maybe because they're different from you. Um, think that, that I'm, I'm special in some way. What, what do you boast about? Well, your accomplishments, what you've done, your physical body, how you look, what, what you can do, what you own. All these things will die. They end when you die. None of them make you right before God. And here's the thing. I don't, I don't care what you have accomplished. You need a priest. You need a priest. But here's the beautiful flip side. You, I don't care what sins you've committed. I don't care what wreck your life is. You have a priest. You have a priest. And this understanding should, should fight, should really destroy the natural sinful pride that can build up like spiritual plaque in your hearts, even when you don't realize it. You know, we look down on other cultures, ethnicity, people in history, and somehow think that because I'm different, I'm, I'm, I'm special, I'm better than them. One of my seminary professors was teaching a class on worship. He's a, he's a pastor of a large, well-known PCA church in Tennessee, and he was invited to go over to Africa. I don't, I don't remember which country, Rich. Um, but he was, he was in Africa, and he was in the bush. And there was a guide and a, a, a translator there, and he was in the back of this you know, thatched hut church with a dirt floor. And, and they were, they were, there was a leader and, and lining out some truth, and the people were repeating it in their language. And he was recounting how I, I remember looking back, how I, I just felt a little bit of pride in my heart. Like, oh, isn't that nice? Look, look at them worshiping God in their little hut and their, their nice little language. And, and so I asked the, he said, I asked the interpreter, well, what are they saying? He said, they're, they're reciting the Apostles' Creed. And he said, I broke into tears because I realized. They're no different than me. They're the same as me. My hope is their hope. Their truth is my truth. It's the exact same way to God. We both have the same mediator. I think we'll hear something about that from Rich tonight as he talks about what God is doing in Africa. You need a priest. They have a priest. You all have equal access to God. Think about the way that should shape the way you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Or just think about the difficult people in your own life. They have just as much of a priest in Christ if they will accept him. And so you see, it's not just what you know or who you are, but who you know. Now, of course, when you truly do know Jesus as Messiah, that he's your priest, and that does change who you are. You're a priest who is drawn to serve your God and worship and those around you to bless them. So I encourage you, as you think about Jesus, savor him as your priest And then go out as a kingdom of priests this week to serve those who God has put in your life. Please pray with me. Father, you have built your church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and the apostle Paul who was capable of sophisticated arguments. Speaking very well. Talked about going back to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first things. And so as we think of Jesus as the one who has fulfilled Adam's failure, who has done what he did not, who is our prophet, priest, and our king, we thank you and think especially tonight that we have one who intercedes for us. Let us not take it for granted and let us come this week to your throne room and, and to come to you as Father, knowing both the amazement that we can come right into your blazing glory, but also the fact 
that we are perfectly welcome with full access. Just as the son of the president or daughter of the president could, could walk right into the Oval Office. And so, Father, we give you praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.